Good morning. If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. Please take it and turn with me to John chapter 14. We're continuing our study of the farewell discourse, as it is sometimes called, in John chapter 14. And today, we're going to look at verses 15 to 24. So John chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. And if you would, please follow along with me as we read from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time as we consider his word this morning. Let's pray. Almighty God, we ask for grace today and the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to understand, believe, and obey what it is that you have spoken to us in your word. We affirm and confess, Father, that your word is true that you are the only true God, that you have all authority and power, and that we as your creatures are called to submit ourselves to you. You are God, and we want to follow you, Father, in faith and in obedience. Give us grace to that end. God, please keep me from error. It's no small thing for your people to come before your word. We pray that you would grant us discernment and faithfulness and clarity and boldness and humility to both declare and believe all things that are for our good in Scripture. Oh God, help us this morning. We pray that our hearing of your word would not be unfruitful. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The goal of this sermon is to deepen your love for and your obedience to Jesus Christ. That's the goal of this message. Those two words, love and obedience, capture the entire scope of the sermon. Notice how Jesus weaves love and obedience like a thread through this entire text. It's so important that we have to get right to it. 
Love and obedience all through the passage. Notice it with me. Love, verse 15, twice in verse 21, verse 23, and verse 24. And then obedience, or its synonym, keep, verse 15, verse 21, verse 23, verse 24. Like a thread, love and obedience are woven into this text. And this is significant, friends. Remember at this point in John's Gospel, the cross is only hours away from Jesus. He has precious few hours left with his disciples. How will he spend those hours? He has just moments between him and death. How will he spend those hours? What will be his focus? That thread is the answer, at least in part. Love and obedience. So when we say that the goal this morning is to deepen your love for and therefore your obedience to Jesus, we are on the right track with that goal because that is Jesus' goal in this passage. Love and obedience. At the same time, this goal of love and obedience is important for another reason as well. We typically don't put those two words together, do we? Love and obedience. Often, Christians tend to emphasize either love or obedience. But we rarely put both of them together. Love and obedience. And the result is that our discussion of both topics can easily become unbalanced. Apart from obedience, our view of love skews towards a purely emotional response. Nothing more than a feeling. And without love, our pursuit of obedience bends toward wrote performance. That's why this text is important. And that's why I just wanted to get right to the point of the sermon. Because in John 14, Jesus provides balance. Balance. His teaching on love leads us to true obedience, and His call to obedience flows out of His view of love. The two are meant to go together. Love for Christ, producing obedience to Christ. And that's the goal today in the sermon. A biblically balanced view of love producing obedience. To pursue this goal, I want to draw your attention to three observations on love and obedience from John chapter 14. Again, it's so important that we just want to get right to it. I want to draw your attention to three observations on love and obedience from John 14. These observations build on one another, going from the pattern to the power to the promise. That's the progression of the sermon. Pattern, power, and promise. Three observations that by God's grace will deepen our love for and obedience to Jesus. You ready? Number one, verse 15, the foundational observation. The the pattern for disciples is loving obedience to Christ. Observation number one, the pattern for disciples is loving obedience to Christ. On the one hand, you could say that verse 15 is rather straightforward. Why do we need to devote an entire point in the sermon to this when the verse is so clear? Listen again to the clarity of Jesus' teaching. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's certainly unambiguous, isn't it? You cannot claim to love Jesus apart from obeying His Word. 
According to Jesus, the mark of love for him is obedience to him. Verse 15 is that plain. But on the other hand, verse 15 also requires more reflection. Here's why. As I'm sure you are aware, our world is very confused about love. And because of that, we can unknowingly read Jesus' plain teaching through a worldly lens. And the result is devastating. So for the sake of having our minds renewed after the word of God, we need to make sure that we're clear on two fronts regarding love in verse 15. We need to make sure we're clear on on two fronts. First of all, the Bible is clear that our love for Christ is responsive, not initiating. Our love is responsive, not initiating. Simple question this morning. Why do you love Jesus? Because, 1 John 4.19, God first loved you. That's why. Our love does not initiate with Christ, but rather responds to Christ. This is incredibly important for getting the gospel right. Verse 15 does not say, if you obey my commandments, then you will love me. That would make our work the initiation of relationship with Christ. And that shift would undermine the gospel. The entire point of the gospel is that God loved us first. God initiates with us. God's love makes the first move, so to speak. And this makes an enormous practical difference in how you live the Christian life. I don't know any Christian who would say they are satisfied with how much they love Jesus. If you woke up today and you're satisfied with how much you love Jesus, praise God, you're in heaven. We all want our love for Christ to be stronger, don't we? Yes. But how does that happen? How does love for Christ get stronger? Should I just sit in my room and close my eyes and hope that I feel more love for Jesus? No. Verse 15 helps us. Since love for Christ is responsive, the way that love grows stronger is by knowing Christ more. Listen, friends, often our love for Christ is so weak because we spend precious little time actually knowing Him. We spend our days chasing other things, even good things, and then we're flummoxed when we come to church on Sundays and our hearts have so little regard for Jesus. You won't love someone you barely know. So the application here in verse 15 is one that we can never hear too much. Press on to know Jesus Christ. Let's press on to know Him. If love for Jesus is responsive, not initiating, if it's responsive, then we grow in love by knowing Christ more fully. So when you read the Bible, pray for the Spirit to give you eyes to see how all of God's promises find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. When you come to church, do not walk through that door without praying that God would use our worship to deepen your understanding of the gospel. As your eyes see more of Christ, your heart will grow in love for Christ. That's because our love for God is responsive, not initiating. To love Him more, we must know Him more. Second reflection on love in verse 15. Jesus makes clear that love is an act of the will, not a passive feeling. Love is an act of the will. 
the world restricts love to a feeling, an emotion that rises or falls based on circumstances. Think of how often you hear someone say they fell out of love with their spouse. What's being communicated about love in that moment? That it's primarily a feeling. That it's primarily emotional and an emotional response. But Jesus in verse 15 defines love very differently. Love, according to Jesus, is an act of the will. It's not primarily a feeling, though feelings are not excluded. Love begins in the will as we act to express our devotion to someone. So, in verse 15, to love Jesus, we engage our wills to follow Him, to submit to Him, to obey Him in His Word. Again, this makes an enormous practical difference in how you live as a Christian. The reality is that we don't often feel much affection for Jesus. If we're honest, and we should be honest as Christians, if we're honest... I think many of us would testify to the fact that many days we wake up and our hearts are rather cold towards God. What do you do on those days? How do you live when you don't feel much love for Jesus? Well, if love is primarily a feeling, then there's not much that you can do. I don't feel much toward Jesus, so I guess I won't do much in response. But verse 15 corrects us. It even changes us. Since love is primarily an act of the will, I can choose to love Jesus by submitting to His Word, even if my feelings are weak. Now, someone will say, but pastor, that sounds like legalism, doing something when your heart is not in it. No, friends, that's not legalism. It's just maturity. Rather than passively allowing our emotions to drive how we live, we can display love in action by engaging our wills to follow Jesus in obedience to His Word. That's the power of verse 15. It changes how we think about love. So this is the foundational observation that begins the passage. Verse 15 probably deserves an entire sermon just to itself. The pattern for disciples is love for Christ leading to obedience to Christ. That's the pattern. So, is that pattern, love leading to obedience, is that pattern evident in your life? We would be foolish to rush past verse 15 without asking the question. Is the pattern of your life increasing obedience to Christ and to His Word. Not perfect obedience, but increasing obedience. Not trusting in your obedience to save you, but pursuing obedience because Christ has saved you. Is that the pattern of your life? Increasing obedience to the God who saved you. Jesus is very clear. This is what love for Him produces in our lives. It produces obedience. Is that pattern evident in your life? Don't rush past the self-examination. Don't rush past the self-examination. Think. Think with me. Are there areas of your life where you are knowingly concealing sin? Is the Spirit of God right now convicting you 
of a habit or a practice or an attitude for which you need to repent? Are you harboring a sinful attitude towards another Christian or even towards God? If so, friends, if, if, if so, then Jesus would challenge your claim to love him because to love him means we obey him. That's the pattern for disciples. And it's one that we ought to take very seriously this morning. Love for Christ, producing obedience to Christ. This discussion of obedience raises an important question. It's the question that I hope you're asking as you're listening. How is it possible for disciples to live this way? We all know how feeble our love often is. And therefore, how weak our wills can be to follow Christ. That's true. So how can we live this way? I mean, even just think about the context in John 14. Jesus' disciples. Jesus just predicted that Peter will deny him three times. And then he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. Now, the question is right there in front of us. How is it possible to live this way? The second observation gives the answer from verses 16 and 17. The power for loving obedience is the indwelling of the Spirit. Observation number two, the power for loving obedience is the indwelling of the Spirit. The transition from verse 15 to verse 16 is key. Verse 15, Jesus prioritizes loving obedience And then very quickly, verse 16, he promises help for the disciples. But amazingly, this promised help is more than a resource. The help is a helper, a person, whom the Father will send. Look at verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Now the use of another in verse 16, is significant. Jesus says, the Father will send you another helper. If there's another helper, then who was the first one? Well, the answer is Jesus, right? What Jesus first provided, the helper will now continue to provide. That, that's, the, that's the another helper in verse 16. And that means the disciples are not going to be left on their own even after Jesus departs. When it comes to following the Lord, the Father will provide another helper to carry on what Jesus has begun in them. Now, the next few chapters in John make clear that this helper in verse 16 is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. The Spirit is sent by the Father in the name of the Son, thus pointing to the Spirit's full deity as God. The Spirit is not an it. The Spirit is a he, a person, equal with the Father and the Son. In fact, the Spirit's deity is essential considering the work Jesus says that he will do. So we're going to look at, we're going to look at these things in more detail over the coming weeks, but I just want to preview what the Spirit does So that we can see how his deity is essential to his work. Here's a little preview. What does the Spirit do? Well, verse 26 in this chapter, he's responsible for the remembrance and recording of Scripture. So the Spirit inspires the Word of God. 
chapter 15, the Spirit will also bear witness about Jesus, thus ensuring that the gospel is maintained from one generation of disciples to the next. And then chapter 16, the Spirit will convict the world, meaning that the, it's the Spirit who gives power to the church's testimony. So, inspiring the Bible, convicting the world, testifying to Jesus. Those are the tasks that the helper in John's gospel accomplishes. And those are tasks that only God could fulfill. That's who the Spirit is. He is the Holy Spirit of God, sent by the Father in the name of the Son, and is therefore fully equal with God as God. So we affirm the deity of the Holy Spirit. He is God. Now, with that preview aside, we're going to talk more about the Spirit over the next several weeks. That preview aside, this morning, we need to see the connection that Jesus draws between obedience and the Holy Spirit. Again, the the shift from verse 15 to verse 16 is crucial. Notice it again, but this time we're going to work backwards. Verse 16 speaks of the helper. But what does the helper help the disciples do? Answer, verse 15. He enables the disciples to love and obey Jesus Christ. That's Jesus' point in this passage when he brings up the Holy Spirit. His point is to highlight how the Spirit enables obedience to Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit does. He enables us to love and obey the Lord. Jesus emphasizes this enabling power in verse 17. Notice the end of the verse where Jesus assures the disciples that they know the Helper. End of verse 17. Jesus says, You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. This is a fascinating point from Jesus. Earlier in the chapter, He said that the Father dwells in the Son. And through that indwelling, the Father carries out His work. So that language of indwelling, dwelling with and in, that indwelling language speaks to power and purpose and enabling. But notice how Jesus uses that indwelling language in verse 16. Who will indwell whom? In verse, I'm sorry, in verse 17. Well, the Spirit will indwell the disciples. Do you see it? This anticipates the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, but don't miss the point here in John 14. As the Father indwelt the Son with power for a purpose, so also the Spirit will indwell believers with power for a purpose. Friends, there's no greater help than this, to have the very Spirit of God enabling you to live in step with Jesus' Word. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He enables, He empowers our obedience to the Lord. Do you want that Holy Spirit help? Yes, I do too. How does that happen? Where do I find it? How do I tap into it? How do I get the Holy Spirit's help? Well, the first half of verse 17 gives us the answer. Look at verse, the first half of verse 17 where Jesus uses a title and a contrast to teach us how the Spirit's enabling happens. So the first part of verse 17, notice first of all the title that Jesus uses for the helper. Who is the helper? He is the spirit of truth, verse 17. He's the spirit of truth. This speaks to the spirit's role 
in revealing, affirming, and upholding Jesus' word. Remember, Jesus himself is the truth. John 14, 6. So the spirit of truth works in and through Jesus' teaching, his word. Please don't miss that point, friends. Where does the spirit of truth carry out his powerful ministry of enabling you to obey God? Where does he do that work? In and through Jesus' word. For Jesus is the truth and the spirit is the spirit of the truth. You see, Jesus' title for the helper is his way of telling you where the spirit's enabling power is found. It's found in and through his word. Along with that title, notice the contrast in verse 17 between the disciples and the world. Notice the contrast. The world, according to Jesus, cannot receive the spirit of truth. Why not? Because the world lies in darkness and unbelief and opposition to God. This is why the world does not see or know the spirit. Because the world does not believe Jesus. Friends, that negative contrast has a positive application. If the world's ignorance of the Spirit is rooted in unbelief, then what does belief bring? Reception of the Spirit by faith. Faith in Christ, in other words, is the conduit through which the Spirit's power flows into a disciple's life. Faith in Christ. So, Put those two things together. Jesus' title and his contrast in verse 17. Put those two things together in order to answer our question. How do we tap into the Holy Spirit's power? How do we tap into the Spirit's enabling work so that we obey God? The answer is by faith in Christ's word. That's how you tap into Holy Spirit power. By faith in the word of God. As we believe God's word... The Spirit works through that Word to enable us to obey what God has revealed. We read Scripture, we believe what God has revealed, and through this remarkable connection of faith and the Word of God, the Holy Spirit empowers us to obey Jesus. Friends, that's how the Holy Spirit's power flows into your life. As you take in the Word of God by faith. And believe it. And then apply it. To say it a different way, that's where the helper helps us. He helps us in and through God's word received by faith. If you want Holy Spirit power in your life, go to the Bible. And believe it. If you want your obedience to Christ to grow stronger, then anchor your life in Scripture, believing what you read and asking the Spirit to enable you to obey. If you want your love for Christ to go deeper, then center your life on the Word of God, believing what you read and asking the Spirit to deepen your love for Christ. This is how the Spirit works through God's Word received by faith and this is where the Spirit's power is found in God's Word received by faith. And that means there's no shortcut to growing. 
Far too often, this is where Christians go astray. This is why all of the so-called prosperity gospel preachers who claim to have the insight about the Holy Spirit and actually know nothing about Him, this is why they lead so many people astray. Because we tend to think that spiritual growth has to happen in some unusual way. We think that we need some kind of heavenly intervention that dramatically reorients our lives. But friends, that is not the Spirit's normal way of working. I mean, sure, the Holy Spirit can dramatically reorient your life in an instant, but most often, the Spirit works quietly. He works humbly. He works slowly. And that means there's no shortcut to growth. You can't microwave godliness. It doesn't work that way. So to grow, to grow, you don't need some mystical mountaintop experience with God. You do not need to wait for an unusual display of Holy Spirit power. If you want to grow, you don't need to do any of those things. You need to take up God's Word and read it and believe it and pray for the Spirit to enable you to obey it. And you do that tomorrow and the next day and the next day and every day until Christ returns or He calls you to Himself. Does that sound like a slow and quiet way to live? Yes, but that's how the Spirit works. Have you ever wondered why almost all of Jesus' analogies for growing as a Christian are centered around farming? Because it takes a long time for things to grow. That's true of both your crops and Christians. You don't need the mountaintop experience. You need God's word believed, embraced, and then pursued by obedience in the Holy Spirit's power. The power for obeying Christ is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And the place where the Spirit works is the word of God. So take up his word and read. What happens when we live this way? According to Jesus, what is the result of the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry in the life of a disciple? What happens when we live this way? That's where we turn in our third observation from verses 18 to 24. The promise of loving obedience is fellowship with God. The promise of loving obedience is fellowship with with God. This paragraph summarizes much of what Jesus has already taught. In in large measure it's a summary paragraph. You can see that summary pretty clearly when you read through the verses. Notice for example how the clear teaching of verse 15 is repeated in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Love for Jesus produces obedience to Jesus. Or notice how Jesus' promise to to return for the disciples back in verse 3. Notice how that is repeated in verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So if he goes to prepare, then he will return to gather. The disciples will not be orphans. Through Christ, they will be sons of God. So in one sense, this paragraph, verses 18 to 24, this paragraph is a summary. It's Jesus reiterating much of what he's already taught. But at the same time, the 
the paragraph also expands Jesus' teaching in a profound direction. And that direction is fellowship with God. He begins to speak here about fellowship with God. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say that the disciples who love and obey him will fellowship with each person of the Godhead, with each person of the Trinity. Notice, as we go through the paragraph, notice how this happens. Each person of the Godhead in fellowship with the disciple who loves and obeys Jesus. It actually begins in verse 17 with fellowship with the Holy Spirit. Listen again, verse 17. You know him, that is the helper, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So, as we saw just a moment ago, the Spirit enables us to love and obey Jesus, and that enabling implies communion. The Spirit will be in Jesus' disciples. Meaning that even though Jesus goes away, the disciples will not be alone. They will have fellowship with the Holy Spirit of God. The disciples will also enjoy fellowship with the Son. Look at verse 19. Jesus looks ahead to the time following His resurrection. And in that day, Jesus says, the disciples will share in His life. Verse 19. Yet a little while... And the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. When Jesus says the world will see him no more, he means very simply that his earthly ministry is coming to an end. The time is short for the the world to behold the glory of, of God in Jesus Christ. After Jesus ascends again to the Father, the next time the world sees him, will be when he returns in judgment. So if the world wants to see Christ now in his glory as the Savior, then they ought to respond to him because his time is his short, verse 19 says. In just a little while, the world won't see him anymore. But the opposite is true for the disciples. This is striking in verse 19. They will continue to see Jesus. How? Why? Because they will share in Jesus' life. Because I live, Jesus says, you will live. That's the main point in verse 19. Because Jesus rises again to life, so also the disciples will know eternal life. They are united to Christ in the fellowship of his resurrection. They have fellowship with him, even though he departs. And this fellowship with Christ now is a promise Of glory to come. Look at verse 20. And notice how the relationship of father and son becomes a promise for Christians. Verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my father and you in me and I in you. Now I take that phrase in that day to refer to the time after Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The time of the new covenant when the Holy Spirit indwells each and every believer. And in that day, Jesus says, believers will know that their entry into glory is secure. Again, that language of indwelling is the key. Think of a chain. Just think for a minute with me of a chain where each link is bound to the whole so that what happens to the whole happens to each and every link. Think, think for just a moment of, of a chain. That's how a believer's relationship to Christ works. When Jesus ascends again to the Father, 
we will know that the Son is in the Father because they dwell together. And since we are linked to Christ by faith, that means we too will one day enter the Father's presence. So do you see the chain-like effect? Because Christ lives, link, we live. Because Jesus enters glory, link, we enter glory. That language of indwelling, the Father in me, I in you, and you in me, that language of indwelling is like this chain of a promise. We have fellowship with the Son, and that fellowship assures us that we will live with God. So, disciples have fellowship with the Spirit, verse 17. They have fellowship with the Son, verse 20. And finally, verse 23, disciples have fellowship with the Father. All three members of the Godhead, they have fellowship with the Father. The other Judas, in verse 22, asks how Jesus will reveal himself to the disciples but not to the world. Jesus' answer points not to an outward display of glory, but an inward enjoyment of fellowship. So listen again, verse 23. Jesus is answering the other Judas. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. This is where the language of dwelling reaches its fullest expression. Notice that phrase, make our home with him. You see that there in your Bibles? That's the same language from earlier in the chapter, verse 2, when Jesus says he goes to prepare a place for his disciples. It's the same language. The idea is the same, to dwell with someone in the same place. But in verse 23, it's remarkable that that place is not an outside location. It's experienced within the believer. Where will the Father dwell? With the Son in the believer. That's how the Father manifests Himself to believers, but not to the world. Because He makes His home with the Son, through the Spirit, in each and every Christian. The key point that I want you to see, friends, is that you have fellowship with God by walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus' word. Fellowship with the Spirit, fellowship with the Son, fellowship with the Father. All three members of the Godhead in communion with the one who loves and obeys Jesus Christ. That promise, that promise of fellowship with God, that promise is the fuel for obedience. That's the application that I want to end with. All through this passage, Jesus has been calling you to obey his word. But the reality is that obedience is costly, isn't it? Even though we love Christ as our Savior, it can still be difficult to take up the cross, uh, take up the cross and follow him. What sustains us on the road of discipleship? What's the fuel for obedience when our hearts are weak and when our love for God grows cold? What's the fuel? The fuel is this fellowship with God. To love Christ is to obey Him. And when we obey Him by faith, this incredible work of grace happens. We enjoy fellowship with God now in the present. Yes, it's true that Jesus goes away to prepare a place for us. But friends, even now, we can enjoy God's presence today as we walk in obedience to Christ 
because we love Christ. That's the promise of John 14. That God will dwell with us and in us by His Spirit and through His Son. And that's the promise that sustains us when obedience becomes costly. So when it, when it does seem to you as though following the Lord will demand more than what you can provide, this is the place you go in Scripture to be encouraged and sustained and to find fuel for your obedience. Walking in loving obedience to Christ deepens this fellowship with God. I said the goal of the sermon was to deepen your love for and your obedience to Jesus. That was the goal because that's the pattern for disciples. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The power for that pattern is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the promise that fuels that obedience is fellowship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. As we conclude, I want to make sure that no one leaves confused on the order of things in the Christian life. Jesus' teaching is that love leads to obedience. That's clear from start to finish in this passage. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. So the pattern is not obedience leading to love. It's not our work that initiates and sustains the relationship with Christ. It's His work that binds us to Him. We love because He first loved us. So perhaps today you've been convicted that you do not obey Jesus as deeply as you ought to. Perhaps the Holy Spirit has even highlighted right now, this morning, specific areas of your life where you need to walk in obedience to Scripture. And perhaps you are also keenly aware that your strength to obey is rather weak. What do you need in order to obey Christ more fully? You need your love for Christ to grow stronger. Love leads to obedience. How does your love for Christ grow stronger? By understanding more fully His love for you. Love is responsive, remember? It's not initiating, it's responsive. We love because He first loved us. To grow in love for Christ then, we must more deeply treasure the love that Christ has for us. So I want to close by making sure that no one is confused today. I want to close by pointing you to the gospel. If you're a Christian who has been convicted that your obedience is weak, what you need is the gospel. If you're a Christian whose love for God has grown cold, then what you need is the gospel. And the gospel in simple form is this from the Apostle John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Reflect on that love, friends. Reflect on that good news that God made you His child by sending His Son to die in your place. Reflect on God's love for you and in response, your love will grow stronger leading to obedience. What you need is the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, forgive us for the fact that we so often 
take the gospel too lightly. Forgive us, Father, for how we often mute your voice in Scripture by either neglecting it or ignoring it. Forgive us, Father, for how often we look for the Holy Spirit's power in anywhere other than the Word of God received by faith. Forgive us, Father, for how lightly we take the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected for our salvation. Renew in us, Father, an appreciation of your love for us so that we might love you in response and obey you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.